Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, July 4th. 2021 happy independence day or barbecue day if that's like your preferred celebration whatever it is this weekend hope you lived it up yeah and got to see some family and friends and enjoy a vaccine enabled bit of covid freedom absolutely so today we had our regular slate of five shows. I thought some of them might be canceled or I know I was expecting something or something, but no, they were all there. They were all happening. So now lots of subs. Yes. What were the shows you took a look at this week? So I looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Mike Emanuel. I'm guessing he's someone well known in the Fox News world. We've seen him before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, but it seemed new to me. And on Face the Nation, it was hosted by Ed O'Keefe, which I'm not sure. I think he's hosted once. Wow. Yeah. In our like four years of Polylog. So it was kind of really nice having two very different approaches. One I liked, one I didn't. And I'll talk about why in today's episode. Hmm. Interesting. Leaving us hanging there. I wonder which one it was. So I think for show ratings, I think I would give Face the Nation a four. I guess I should give it a five. Ooh, maybe that's suggesting what the what <laughs> maybe <felt> about <laughs> Ed O'Keefe. I thought Ed O'Keefe had really interesting questions and followed topics over multiple guests in a really interesting way. On Face the Nation, I thought Mike Emanuel. Some of his interviews were missing quite a bit. So, yeah, I I think I'm going to give it a two. A more generous person would give them a three and a five, but I'm not that person, so I'm giving them a two and a four. So two for... Fox News Sunday. Fox News Sunday. Wow. That is is bad. That's the definition of bad. (laughs) Okay, fine. Maybe it's a three, and then Face the Nation is a five. It's okay to say something's bad if it's bad. If it's bad, it's bad. But... All right. I'm doing three and a five. I'm sticking with it. Okay. What did you look at, Brendan? I took a look at Meet the Press, hosted by none other than Chuck Todd, as per usual. Man rarely takes a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> I think the sports, the sports, when they're bumped by sports, is preempted by sports. That's his vacations. Maybe. So Chuck Todd had a special episode looking back at COVID-19. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's what the whole show is about. He did, really... But it was a live show, right? Yep, yep. And he had Dr. Fauci on. He had a global vaccine distributor, a data download, an interesting panel. So we'll talk a bit about that. I thought it was generally a pretty good episode. So I would say that is a four on our ratings list. And then this week was hosted by Martha Raditz. She had a really good segment where she went down to West Virginia. I'll talk a bit about that. 
and she spoke to an economics reporter. She had a segment about Afghanistan, which we'll get into, and I was not as much of a fan on, of. And then uh, she had a panel, mostly women, no, you know, super politically motivated speakers on the panel. So that was much appreciated. So I would say it was a, hmm, I want to say it's above average. Maybe I then have to rejigger Meet the Press and say it was a very good episode and then go down and say this week was a good episode and State of the Union, looking at State of the Union, hosted by Dana Bash. She had an interview with Jeffrey Zeintz, who is part of the White House task force for COVID. She also had Governor Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas. Jim Clyburn. She had a good segment at the end, her and her badass women of Washington. However, the show was just okay. There were some issues I had. And we'll get into that. Uh, so I should say, State of the Union is a three. This week, a four. Meet the Press, five. All right, Naomi, did you have anything of high quality or questionable quality this week? Yeah, so I really just wanted to spotlight Ed O'Keefe. Like I said, it was really nice to hear a different host on face the nation it just so rarely happens on cbs mm-hmm. it's margaret brennan not margaret brennan john dickerson and like i don't know what's happening in the calendar if one of the two are not available but pretty yeah. much in the last i think major garrett is the only other person we've yes. seen and that's usually and he's usually subbing in for john dickerson before ed o'keefe would be so very rare that ed o'keefe is hosting and like I said, I really it's appreciate- like the line of succession, you know, it goes all the way down to the person who runs the coffee machine at CBS News. They've got it all lined Associate up. Associate producers, look out. <laughs> so yeah, so I appreciated Ed O'Keefe's kind of different approach. So this is kind of like a shout out to both him and also Dr. Gottlieb, who I don't even know how many times he's been our and quality moment. Gottlieb was on as well? Yes. Now and- see, why wasn't he hosting? well funny you just say that take a listen to the end of this clip which i thought was really endearing but the bulk of the clip i thought was just like pure gottlieb giving us a sneak peek into a probable future related to COVID, of course and gives us some real tangible ideas as to how our lives might be impacted by this pandemic and possible future iterations of it Well, and about that, because you've talked a bit about how we have to start thinking differently. Does this mean, for example, we're probably going to have to keep a face mask in our pocket at all times or in our bag, especially come the fall and the winter, and that at times a company or a school or the airlines may say, hey, this week or during these few weeks might be best to mask up or just keep your distance? And is that going to become normal? I think the use of masks is going to become more normalized. I think people are going to use them on a voluntary basis. And certainly people are at higher risk from COVID, bad COVID outcomes or from influenza. But I think going to work with the sniffles is going to be frowned upon. I think businesses are going to have access to routine testing. I think there might be symptom checks within certain settings. If you have a congregate setting where a lot of people are getting together, they might check symptoms. Fever guns might become more routine, even though they're not that helpful. I think you're going to see a veneer of safety superimposed upon upon normal life. That doesn't mean that there's going to be mask mandates reimposed. I'm not sure that's necessarily what we should be doing right now, given the substantially reduced overall death and disease we're seeing from coronavirus, which is likely to continue as long as this virus doesn't mutate in an untoward way. But I do think we're going to need to be more vigilant about the spread of respiratory pathogens. I mean, think back. It was always looked upon as being something that was somewhat brave if you toughed out a cold. That's going to be really frowned upon now. You don't want to be in a social setting where you don't feel well. 
So in other words, if you're that employee who shows up at the office with a cold and says, no, it's fine, I'm going to work through it, really the boss should be telling you, no, go home, rest up, and don't get everybody else sick. And you, might, and you might have a symptom check before you even come to work where they ask you a series of questions. And if you're a child who shows up at school not feeling well, you'll be sent home as well, too. So I think societally we're just going to have a different etiquette around the risk of respiratory pathogens. Um, we can't afford the morbidity and the mortality from flu and coronavirus being twin viruses that circulate at very high levels. Again, we were too complacent about flu. We let it infect and kill far too many people. I think we're going to have to think differently. That also means improving air quality in workplaces. We're going to be looking at things like airflow and filtration. In the same way we greened buildings, I think we're going to make buildings more healthy as well. Making his 68th appearance on Face the Nation, you have uh, surpassed Bob Dole and Joe Biden, and uh, you got a ways to go to catch John McCain. Wow. Yeah, so isn't that 68 figures so great? Well, yeah, it's great to see the number, but it's like, holy God, how did John McCain... Like, I know that too, what? right? <laughs> I, he was on... Literally, Gottlieb has been on every show, save one. There was one we know he was out of. Well, in the couple weeks that we were on vacation or things like that. Well, we don't know the, sh- the reality right, of that. Right, there might be extra Sundays. Well, I'm guessing probably still, not. Essentially, not. everyone for like well over like a year and a half. At least 15 months. And somehow, John McCain was on more... If we were doing Polylog back then, we'd be having a lot of questions about why John McCain was co-hosting the show sure. and whether that was appropriate. Sure. But I guess but he's I old. He's old, right? I mean, he was old. And he he's... ran for president. And so I'm sure as a candidate, he must have come on a bunch. Yeah. And he was a favorite and he would say yes and he would go on for years. I mean, you know, he was oh, elected. Oh, and probably Bob Schieffer loved talking to John McCain. And he was, you know, a POW war hero, probably was on back then. So, yeah. But going back. So, yes, the figure at the end is amazing and adorable. But also what Dr. Gottlieb is actually talking about is something I have been so eager to hear and... So many times people, I hear people saying like, they just want COVID to be over. And I appreciate this insight. It's like, okay, COVID's not going to be as dangerous as it has been, but it doesn't mean it's not going to permanently change our societal expectations to public health, to each other, to our employers, to our institutions overall. So just really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I really hope that everything that he says is how the world ends up being. We know all too well in the work world how people do feel oh proud i'm gonna work you know right through the cold and it's all it's a badge of honor and and all that garbage yeah i mean even in schools do you remember how like much oh, praise attendance. was given to kids who had perfect attendance i'm mm-hmm. like either you are in like a germ bubble or you came to school when you're sick yeah so yeah and and then the discussion about circulation being so mm-hmm. important i mean i feel like People still don't understand the importance of circulation as it relates to COVID, but I would hope that Gottlieb can push and other people can push there to be standards related to that. Absolutely. I mean, and it's going to go back into our thinking around worker rights. Brendan, do you have a quality or questionable moment? Yeah, I have a questionable. It's related to this week. It's related to Afghanistan. It's related to Martha Raddatz. Martha Raddatz was hosting this week once again. As we know, she is buddy-buddy with the military, all military generals, all military stories, everywhere, anywhere. She's there. And <laughs> What a poem. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Today, she was talking about Afghanistan, which the United States is, has decided, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden agreed that it is time to get out of Afghanistan, which we have been in for over 20 years. Or I guess it's about 20 years. I think it's about 20 years. Yes, exactly 20. So the reason it's a low light is the direction by which Martha Raddatz was asking all of her questions was the direction that was hinting towards we probably shouldn't be leaving Afghanistan. Take a listen to this these two clips. Now, the first one you'll hear is when she was interviewing General Austin Scott Miller, commander of NATO Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan. Of course, she was there and she was proud to say she was the only journalist who was there for the moment that they got up and left such and such base. Take a listen. Senior military leaders had advised the president that a contingent of around 2,500 troops should remain in Afghanistan. Miller will not say what his advice was. Would you have liked to have seen a small force stay here? The, uh, let me hold on that one. But very much on his mind, what happened when all U.S. troops pulled out of Iraq and then ISIS moved in? I want to just go back to the Iraq. Do you think about Iraq when we're leaving here and what happened in Iraq when we left? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's on, that's on, that's on everybody's mind. It's, uh, you know, again, these are judgments uh, that we have to make balanced against our national interests. So there it is, Martha Raddatz, not only asking the question, getting a non-response, making sure she holds on that non-response, and then suggesting, oh, well, here's what happened when we left Iraq, let me ask you about that as a way to get your feelings about this situation. Later, she speaks to Gail Zamak Lemon, who spent 15 years reporting on Afghanistan and is now an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And she had this to ask. Gail, I have heard general after general, as you have, say, just give us a little more time. Politicians say it as well. And yet you cannot call this a successful effort, given what's going on with the Taliban. So when you look at it, why isn't Biden right just pulling out those troops? Afghanistan has always been uh, a story of dark clouds and green shoots. And they've lived right alongside each other. And what you saw depended on where you sat. And I think the, the moment now is not about the military piece. The moment now is about what is the political future, what's going to happen in terms of economic development and aid, and how do you keep people safe who have supported the United States for the past, uh, you know, 19 years. Just give us a little more time, because 20 years has not been enough time in this place. The reason this is a low light, not only because it's pretty clear the direction of questioning that we're getting, but the questioning that we're not getting, right? Right. I mean, why aren't all the questions about why were we there for 20 years? What has been the result of it? What were the policy failures or decisions that were made by so many different administrations? Or even what were the accomplishments and what do you think is sustainable? for the Afghani government to continue on on their own. Well, like, right. if you want to have it kind of in a more Martha Raddatz celebratory, but, military, but, but military fashion, it, it's still reflective. But that's the thing. It's like, it's always about what the problem is and why is the problem 
that we're leaving so quote unquote suddenly after 20 years rather than the reality, which is why is it that we're leaving so much later than anyone would have anticipated when we first went, right? Like that is a much bigger question and it has a lot more possible reasons behind it rather than, oh, well, Biden's just decided he wants to do it, right? That's a much less interesting answer for why we're, why we're leaving when we are. And I think this kind of goes into the heart of like why Sunday morning matters. I think that conversation that you're asking for is super important. I also recognize it can be hard to do on kind of like a daily news show, kind of bringing in historical pieces, you know, bringing outside experts, kind of really having a thought piece about it. But that's perfect for Sunday morning. It's the perfect time to kind of do a more thorough story and explainer about leaving this war or leaving this country after 20 years. Yeah. It's such a missed opportunity. Especially after the death of Donald Rumsfeld, former defense secretary under George W. Bush, that just happened this week. That would have been a perfect launching point to talk about his legacy, Mm -hmm, how we got into Afghanistan to begin with, what the original objectives were, how they kept changing and adjusting, how the Afghanistan mission you know, balances with other national interests and military operations that the U.S. was engaged in in the world or maybe decided not to be engaged in because we were so focused on Afghanistan. There's just such a bigger conversation to be had than just why why is Biden getting out or why is he right or why is he wrong? I mean, and the res- we're getting a response that still touches on this. She's saying it's less about the kind of military moment and more about the political moment and the economic investment into Afghanistan. Like this expert brings it back into a perspective that I think is worthwhile of our time. But it's not we get there because of the expert, not because of Martha Raddatz's questions. Yes. And I do give the show credit for inviting such an expert on. And I do want to provide, as you said, Naomi, she did have some interesting points, and I feel like she was beginning to start that conversation. Take a listen to this fascinating fact that Lemon had. So Afghanistan 2021 is not Afghanistan 1996 when the Taliban swept Kabul. And Kabul is a very different place in a rapidly urbanizing country. Think about this. Two-thirds of the country is 25 and under. They don't even remember the Taliban last time around. And the question is, how do you protect the gains made by young people who have fought every single day for a brighter future. Isn't that insane? Two thirds of all of Afghanistan's people are under the age of 25. They have only known in their memory the U.S. engaged in that country. That's literally insanity. Yeah. So good job booking a smart person, great expert to have that perspective, but reel in the question of bias. Come on. Why aren't we having a bigger conversation about what we did there and why we were there as long as we were? Totally. This is the time to do it. All right, Naomi. Well, what stood out to you this week in journalism? Well, kind of a little bit tied to your frustration to this week. I wanted to talk a little bit about the framing and questions and really the journalistic approaches of Mike Emanuel on Fox News Sunday, 
it's interesting because I remember, and it's been a while, but remember how we used to kind of like rage against checklist interviews where oh, yeah. people just go, they run through topics and ask question on this topic and a question on that topic and a question on this topic. Jake Tapper used to do that a lot more frequently. I hate it so much. And it's been a really long time since we've seen it, but that's exactly what happened on Fox News Sunday. It's awful because there's like no follow-ups. There's no listening really happening, it's, no engagement. Yeah, there's It's like you could have just emailed the list to the person. Yeah, just email and like send a producer to like record. It's just, it's such a waste of time. In an interview that he had with Michael McCall, who is a Republican congressman from Texas, they covered... Four topics, Afghanistan, COVID, immigration, infrastructure. There were eight questions, four topics, zero follow-up. He would just ask a question. Oh, interesting. Ask a question. Oh, okay. So do we think he even made up the questions or was he just like handed a sheet of paper? I don't know. I mean, like clearly he can read well from a prompter. <laughs> like, But like, if that's your only expectation of a journalist, like really? Anyway, take a listen to this first question by Mike Emanuel to Congressman McCall. It's a little bit long, but just listen to the follow-up after a very lengthy response from the congressman. President Biden taking some heat from an unlikely place, the Washington Post editorial page, which expresses the concern Al-Qaeda could reestablish bases in the country, waves of refugees are likely to pour out, and rivals such as Iran, China, and Russia could take from this withdrawal that President Biden lacks the stomach to stand up for U.S. allies. Do you share those concerns? Uh, yes, I do. I, you know, we just handed uh, Bagram uh, Air Base over to the Afghans, uh, which is a strategic asset in the region uh, to protect us from uh, terrorists. It counters Russia, China, and Iran in the region. Now that's uh, been turned over to the Afghans. When you look at the IC assessment, that'd be the intelligence community's assessment, uh, some reporting that within six months, the Taliban could completely take over uh, the country, including Bagram uh, Air Base. It, it's quite frightening. And they have gone on a, quite an offensive right now in the uh, more rural areas. And they're poised to take over provincial capitals uh, once our troops are finally out of there. It looks like within a month uh, will be completely withdrawn. My, my criticism, uh, we can debate how long to stay there, but, but my criticism is the lack of planning and preparation for this. If you if you fail to plan, you, you plan to fail. And I, and I worry also when I met with President Ghani last week, Mike, mm-hmm. um, you know, they talked about his team about this is going to be the year of the jihad. What do they mean by that? It means all the young males in Pakistan at the madrasas are poised with the Taliban to, to pour over into Afghanistan. Uh, and you're going to see a major civil war take place. And I don't think at the end of the day, it's going to look pretty. At the end of the day, I worry about the embassy uh, first and foremost. Sure. Bloomberg reported Friday a plan is still in flux to expedite immigration visas. So Congressman McCall is saying a lot there, right? It's talking about why it's problematic that we're leaving there, why the Taliban is likely to come back in, what, what spaces in the country we're possibly going to be vulnerable in. Supposedly, he's open to a conversation about how long we should be there. (laughs) That also could have been a follow-up question. But at the end, Mike Emanuel says, sure. And then just moves on to his next question. Bloomberg reported Friday a plan is still in flux. There is zero acknowledgement of all the things that McCall, Congressman McCall, just said. Right. Or or any sort of 
fact checks or context or further probing, probing. Yeah. of any sort. And, and maybe you agree with him, which that's not what we're usually looking for in a journalist, but validate what he's saying, at least. None of that. It's so lazy and so boring. Yep. It is so boring. It is wild. And this occurred throughout the interview where it was like a minute and a half response and then just moving on. This is how Mike Emanuel closed out the interview again with Congressman Michael McCall. And this time he's talking about infrastructure and whether or not it's likely to get passed. Okay, to infrastructure, does Speaker Pelosi's insistence on pairing the bipartisan infrastructure agreement with a broader multi-trillion dollar package damage the chances of getting Republicans to vote yes on infrastructure? And if Republicans ultimately vote against infrastructure, what's the political risk, risk of rejecting a bunch of pretty popular investments? Well, I think infrastructure is popular and I think it is bipartisan. and. I think, you know, I know the Senate working with the president's trying to work out a bipartisan agreement. That's our best chance for success here. I think with the House, what uh, Pelosi put forward was a totally partisan measure. Uh, you know, one out of every two dollars went to the Green New Deal. Totally unacceptable to Republicans. You know, if you're really serious about this, let's look at traditional infrastructure, and that is roads, bridges, rural broadband, which is so important to the country right now, uh, and not muck it up with uh, things that have nothing to do with infrastructure. I worry that uh, they're going to expand health care and education, have nothing to do with, with uh, you know, with infrastructure. And then Bernie Sanders will use a reconciliation process uh, to, uh, to basically open it up to a massive tax increase. And this is the Trojan horse syndrome that we're, I think we're most worried about. Congressman McCall, thank you for joining us today. I hope you and your family enjoy your 4th of July. Just a complete failure to... Engage at all? In, in any way. It's, in any way. It is just maddening. In comparison, just to have like a palate cleanser and a reminder that this is not necessary, I wanted to share a couple clips from Face the Nation where I thought Ed O'Keefe actually did the exact opposite. It's a little bit different because he's kind of expanding on a topic, on a question over two guests, but you can tell that he's clearly engaged on the topic. In this instance, Ed O'Keefe is talking to White House COVID response coordinator, Jeffrey Zients, about whether or not we're going to need a booster, possibly in the fall. Real quick, if I'm somebody who's been vaccinated, if there's someone watching this program who's been vaccinated and curious, um, do they need to get a booster shot this fall with their flu vaccine? That is a question that's being studied in clinical studies. We will look, the Biden administration will look to the scientists and to the doctors on advice on boosters. That has not been determined yet. What I can tell you, if boosters are needed, we are ready, as we have been throughout this fight with the pandemic. We have contingency plans. We have supply. So if the decision is made that boosters are needed, we are ready, but that decision has not been made by the science, scientists and the doctors. And you don't have any sense of when it will be made? It'll be based on clinical trials that are ongoing. And as soon as the doctors and scientists determine they have the data they need, they'll make that decision. Jeffrey Zients is the White House COVID-19 response coordinator. We thank you for spending part of Independence Day with us. Okay, so Ed O'Keefe wants to know whether or not we're going to need boosters. The COVID response coordinator is saying we're studying it, we're studying it, and won't give them any answers beyond that. 
This is the first question in the next immediate interview with Dr. Gottlieb. As we get started, I wanted to follow up on something Jeff Zients told us there in our conversation, that the science and trials weren't complete in terms of whether boosters, booster shots will be necessary. That's not what we've been hearing from drug companies and from other medical professionals. In your view, are we going to need boosters this fall? I think some people will have the option of getting boosters, and I think it's going to be recommended for some people. Um, the trials are ongoing. Jeff is right. Those trials are going to read out in the next couple of months. There is some data right now um, that does support the fact that when you get a booster, it does broaden your immunity and does deepen your immunity, meaning that you get more antibodies in terms of in, from the initial response from the second shot, and you get a broader complement of antibodies. You get what we call a polyclonal response, which means you're getting antibodies against more parts of the virus, which does suggest that a booster could give you better immunity against some of these variants. I think where we're likely to end up with this is that there could be a recommendation for certain people, people who are maybe over the age of 65 or 60, um, people who are out a certain length of time from receiving their second dose. And I think that that will be the recommendation that ASIP or CDC ultimately settles on, including people who may have pre-existing conditions that put them at higher risk of COVID disease. So the boosters are unlikely to be recommended for everyone. I think they'll be recommended for people who are at higher risk. And what we've seen from the clinical data, and the clinical data that we have right now is people who have been naturally infected from COVID looking at the durability of their immunity. That is so well done. It's a question that is the host finds valuable to his audience. He checks with one guest who's an expert. Follows up on it. Follows up. Still kind of like a blah answer. In the next immediate interview with another expert, he explains kind of probes it again and gets a more robust answer together both of the like the answer from Zients and Gottlieb you get a way better fuller picture of kind of the very careful measured approach that the Biden administration is taking really leaning on experts not trying to get ahead of experts and making any declarations but then you have an outside non-administration public health official who can give us the context of saying like hey we're researching it now this is what i'm guessing they're gonna find but we can't make that call until it's there like it's so those two minutes were way more worth my time than like the six to eight minutes that i listened to congressman mccall on fox news sunday Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not even just about the person who's being interviewed. This is about the journalist. Is the journalist engaged in the interview? Is that so much to ask? By the way, I did want to point out, it drove me crazy at the beginning of that clip with Michael McCall and Mike Emanuel. The question Emanuel asks is also a double question. He asks one question and he's like, and if the Republicans vote against it, what's the blah, blah, you know, and it's like, stop it. You never get to that. No one ever gets to the second question. Stop trying to cram two questions in there. You know who's been doing two questions more frequently? Chris Wallace. So frustrating. But Brendan, let's stay with journalism. Any journalism notes that you want to share today? Yeah, I had a bit of a a compare and contrast as well here today. And this is the -the on-the-ground reporting that we saw from... West Virginia on this week with Martha Raddatz. And I wanted to compare that with the interview we heard of Governor Asa Hutchinson, governor of Arkansas, on State of the Union with Dana Bash. And I thought it was kind of interesting, two different techniques and takes on kind of a similar issue, which is Republican governors in states where people are not getting vaccinated as much. 
And I'm not necessarily making judgment calls on which approach here is better than the other. I think they both have some value here, but it's interesting to look at these different approaches. So first of all, let's take a look at State of the Union with Dana Bash, because we haven't heard much from her this week. And she was speaking, as I mentioned, with Governor Hutchinson, Republican of Arkansas, and asking him about these vaccination rates. But before she does, she provides context in the form of both facts and an interview clip with a doctor from the University of Arkansas. And that's what she uses to frame her initial conversation. Take a listen. Joining me now is the governor of a state where vaccination rates are lagging. Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, uh, Governor. Happy Fourth of July. Uh, let me ask about the facts on the ground where you are. Only 42 percent of Arkansans have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. And in the last week, your state's cases have almost doubled. I want you to listen to Dr. Cam Patterson, the head of the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. We are now going in the wrong direction yet again. We have to be concerned that this would be a a trend that could continue. And if it does, it would appear that we may be in the beginning of the third surge of COVID-19 here in the state of Arkansas. Do you agree that Arkansas is headed for a third surge of COVID-19? And are you open to reimposing restrictions like mask mandates? Well, the solution is the vaccinations, and Dr. Patterson was with me at my weekly news conference and emphasizing uh, the points he made so that that would encourage people to get vaccinated. And in fact, we've done very well in our senior citizens, 65 plus, getting vaccinated, uh, our nursing home residents and staff, high rate of vaccination, but it is our younger adults that's now getting hit with the Delta variant, which is more contagious, has more severe consequences. And uh, that's the concern that's causing the increase in hospitalizations. Governor, why are you having so much trouble getting people vaccinated? Why is it so hard? Well, in a rural state, uh, in a conservative state, uh, there is hesitancy and you're trying to overcome that. We got the uh, early vaccinations out because people were anxious. They were in a very vulnerable population. Our cases went down dramatically and that slowed uh, the vaccination rate. Uh, The urgency diminished and now it's picking up again. One of the things we're going to concentrate on is working with our employers. They're really one of the keys. As as Jeff Zients said, uh, uh, obviously the medical professionals are most trusted, but the employers have an opportunity to make it accessible for them, give them paid time off, the employees, they can go get vaccination, and to encourage them with the right level of of education and information. Those are the kind of strategies that I think will make a difference in the coming days. So there you see the way that Dana Bash framed the context of the situation to start with, right? She didn't just say, why are cases, you know, lagging? She provided real numbers and an actual expert ahead of time. You know, often we're saying, oh, we'd love to see some fact checking after the fact on these shows. But it's even better if you can get the facts at the beginning of the interview so that your guest can't lie or can't try to stretch the facts. Or if they do, it's pretty obvious because the audience already knows what the facts are. You can get there before the guest. 
That's a pretty cool technique, and I'd love to see it more. I do have a just a slight little issue with her saying, do you agree that Arkansas is headed for a third surge of COVID-19 after the doctor said that it was? And it's like, why, why does it matter whether the governor agrees or not if this is a scientific projection? The question should be about the response, right? right? Like, it should be. How are you preparing w- for yes, the exactly. With a third surge, surge happening, is, exactly. how do you prepare? Let's jump over to this week, where Martha Raddatz went, went, in reality, went to West Virginia to try to get the story there. And here is how she set that up and included some clips from Governor Jim Justice, who she spoke with. But we begin this morning with our return to West Virginia, once leading the pack in vaccination distribution, a model for the nation, now near the bottom of the pack for fully vaccinated residents. What can their example tell us about the vaccine effort nationwide? We hit the road to find out. And Ellie, you are not vaccinated. Not yet. It's something we heard over and over and over again. You're not vaccinated? No. Why not? I don't know. I just don't believe in it, I guess. Their reasoning? They're young and healthy. Why not? Um, I just, right now, I don't think I'm at risk for it that much. As we hit Independence Day, shots in arms are slowing down, and the people most hesitant young adults. When we first visited West Virginia last January, at the beginning of the vaccine rollout, it was a success story. Dr. Sherry Young was overseeing a massive operation at Charleston's convention center. But today, at this local health department, Young is struggling to even get a handful of people vaccinated. We were busting out of the scene, so we had to go to the convention center across the street where we did 5,344 in our best day. Yeah. And now we're back down to doing 8 to 10 a day. 8 to 10 a day? Yes. How do you convince those people who aren't getting it to do it? Well, any way we can. And West Virginia is doing everything it can to get people to get vaccinated. They're offering free hunting licenses, free fishing licenses, free hunting rifles, and even four-year scholarships. Despite being among the first states to get its older residents vaccinated, Governor Jim Justice is frustrated with the statewide slowdown. Only 46% of West Virginians are fully vaccinated. The young people were having a hard time getting them across the finish line and getting them vaccinated. It's, it's the old, you could lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? I mean, you, you provided the vaccine and yet... But maybe what you got to do is lead them to water and then if they won't drink, you got to just some way stand up and push their head down to some way at least a few will drink. Nationally, 67% of adults have received one dose, still shy of the Biden administration's 70% goal by the 4th of July. But that percent plummets with age. Only 39.5% of people between 18 and 24 years old are fully vaccinated. So as you can hear, a very different approach. I mean, rather than asking the governor to come on the show, she went to the state, spoke to real people, recognizing what the issue was ahead of time, trying to understand through their own words why these young people are hesitant or refusing to get the vaccine. 
and then spoke to someone at an actual health department whose job it was to administer the vaccines, the types of changes they've seen, talks about what they're doing to try to encourage more people to get the vaccine, and then asks the governor. So a much more holistic approach and made all the more powerful by the fact that this week visited West Virginia a few months ago when they were a model for how to get the vaccine out quickly. They were doing just an excellent job, probably the best in the country, initially distributing the vaccine, and now they are a laggard. And the final thing I want to point out here is the introduction that Martha Raddatz has for this piece. She doesn't just say, we went to West Virginia to find out what's happening in West Virginia. She says, what can their example tell us about the vaccine effort nationwide? We hit the road to find out. So she's framing it as, we're going to learn something about all of America that is more relevant to everyone who's watching this in their state, not just West Virginia. So just way, 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 I think way more value than necessarily we get from the standard interview like we saw with Governor Hutchinson, who, by the way, is clearly angling for some sort of future political position, potentially running for president in 2024 as a Republican, which he was asked about on the show today. This is so interesting because COVID as a story hasn't gone away, but journalists have to kind of pick and choose how they want to approach that story and how they want to have something fresh and interesting to say and observe something new for their audience. And so I think it's interesting that Dana Bash and Martha Raddatz are both angling for the story of how do Republican governors try to convince their constituents to really take this seriously, but do it in a very different way. And like you mentioned, Brendan, it's not a comment that one is more worthwhile or more effective than the other, but it's acknowledging the approach to begin with that I think can be really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I the, I do want to say too here, there really is value in seeing the faces of the people who are refusing the vaccine, hearing in their own words how they describe their hesitation. I do think it's worth putting a face to these numbers, to these discussion points, which we hear over and over again, like what what is going through these people's minds? What are they feeling when they're confronted with the question about why they're not getting a vaccine? They're not just numbers and data points as they appear to be on State of the Union or other shows where they're just providing basic facts. They're actual people with faces. And that makes an impact when we're dealing with television and a multimedia medium like this. Absolutely. It's interesting, Brendan, that you comment on the Republican governors. My something in politics is also looking at Republican, not, I shouldn't say Republican governors, is also looking at governors. Mm -hmm. Ed O'Keefe interviewed both the governor of Utah and the governor of Oregon State. He did have some questions for them about COVID, specifically the governor of Utah. And he had an interesting comment about essentially really young states are struggling with COVID vaccine rates because there's more people who are not eligible or, you know, just are more hesitant. But 
You mean like states with younger populations Correct. that skew with younger populations. When Correct. you said young states, I kept thinking like states that join the union it's later. It's funny you say that because that was actually my question when I was listening. I was like, who's like the order of the state of when a state became a state? And then I so realized... So Hawaii and Alaska? <laughs> no, it's the actual like population. <laughs> okay, now I understand. Or average age of the population. But that's not the questions I actually wanted to focus on for my segment. What I really wanted to look at is that I thought it was very cool that Ed O'Keefe focused some of his interview with both governors about climate change. Because as much as sometimes it doesn't seem like it's approached in this way, climate change is a political conversation and it can happen to anyone and everyone at any time. It's not just when Democrats or very liberal people are talking about the Green New Deal. A conversation about climate change and climate policy is apolitical, really, when it's affecting all sorts of different kinds of communities. In Utah, Ed O'Keefe brings up the severe drought across the state and asks the governor what they're planning to do about it. I want to turn your attention, Governor, to the weather. Um, there have been some incredible maps that have shown drought conditions in your state. Uh, you Look at this map, for example, uh, a year ago versus now. Uh, 100% of Utah is in drought. 98% of the state is in what can be classified as extreme drought. 65% in exceptional drought, the highest intensity. What is the best way to respond to something that's going to be really difficult to reverse at this point? Sure. Well, there, there are lots of different responses that, that are necessary. Um, one, we, we have to conserve water better. We have to use less water. And uh, that's going to happen in lots of different ways. We have water restrictions across the state. I'm also a farmer. We're, we're down about 70% of our water consumption right now. And that will have economic and, and food stability impacts across our state. So, so we just, every person in our state has to use less water. We'll do that through restrictions and technology ad- advances as we move forward. That's number one. Number two, um, and we talked about this with Western governors just this past week. Um, we, we have to store more water. Uh, the, the people that settled these these arid mountain valleys and, and, and Western uh, states knew that. Um, we're not doing a great job of that anymore. I'm grateful that in, in this bipartisan infrastructure push, there is money for that type of infrastructure. Um, storing water above ground and, and underground as well will make a big difference as we are also the fastest growing state in the nation. So we have to be prepared for generations to come. Later, I think the most immediate question after this is about Governor Cox's farm. He's like a comes from a farming family, kind of like Senator Tester, and is asked about the effects of climate change on his own family business. Like, yeah, it's specifics like that that make a conversation about climate policy, not some wishy-washy something that only liberals care about. And I think it's a really, really smart approach. And hearing all this drought talk as someone who (laughs) we've been dealing with this in California, like it's just more and more common that this is statewide priorities in states that are being affected. And were there questions about the temperatures, the insane temperatures? The heat wave? Yeah. Well, interesting you say that because immediately after this, Ed O'Keefe talked to Kate Brown. She's the governor of Oregon. I know this past week you met with the president virtually, along with other Western governors, including Governor Cox, who we just spoke with, to discuss the drought and heat waves and these changing climate patterns. What does Washington, what does the federal government need to be doing to help these Western states prepare for this new normal? That's a really good question, and it was a question the president asked In short, we need resources and we need boots on the ground. 
Uh, for example, we need financial resources uh, to be able to purchase uh, critical essential equipment like aircraft to help us fight fire. We need to make sure that we have adequate boots on the ground. Senator Wyden's done a good job fighting for the state of Oregon to get us uh, financial resources to be able to train our National Guard's men and women ahead of time so they can support our firefighting efforts. But it also means that agencies like FEMA, who do not aid our undocumented families, we need to make sure that that happens. So, for example, um, of the families that lost homes uh, in southern Oregon last Labor Day fire, um, several hundred of them were undocumented. FEMA does not provide aid or assistance to these families. It is absolutely unacceptable. These families are so much a part of our communities. They're the heart and soul of our culture, and they are the backbone of our economy. They deserve the assistance, and they need it. That's such a specific question and such a specific response that I so appreciated because oftentimes... The connection between federal policy, specifically, especially around climate change and the needs at the state level can seem so far away from each other. And so to have a question saying, like, you guys are doing things to respond to the climate crisis in your state. What do you need from the federal government to make that possible? Some of these are basic requests, right? Financial support for, you know, fire response. Like, yes, OK, we need that. But this anecdote around FEMA, like that was just gut wrenching. And I had no idea, absolutely no idea that FEMA doesn't provide any support to undocumented families in natural disasters. It's horrible. It's insane. So horrible. And I feel like that's a small detail that would surprise a lot of viewers of the Sunday morning political shows. Like it's just it's such a sliver of policy that unless you work in federal like federal emergency response you wouldn't necessarily know but then once you know it you can't you can't forget it and it's that's why it's so important to have different types of leaders across the country share their perspective of what they need and how they're impacted by various issues like climate change brendan what's your something in politics that you wanted to share today so i wanted to talk a little bit about how meet the press decided to dedicate their entire episode to looking back at the COVID-19 pandemic and to look forwards at where we might be going in the future. Obviously, there's been a lot of talking about where we are <laughs> over the course of this. You know, the ups and downs, we all kind of lived it through the Sunday shows, through our daily lives, obviously. And there's also been some thoughtful discussion about what went wrong in the pandemic. But in the panel, there was a really interesting discussion about what it means for the future of the way we live our lives in this country. And part of that was made possible by who the Meet the Press team invited into this panel. This panel was not about politics. It was about policy. It was about our future. And here is how Chuck Todd introduced his panelists. Welcome back. The panel is joining us. Audie Cornish, host of NPR's All Things Considered. Kate Snow, the anchor of NBC Nightly News Sunday and our senior national correspondent here. And Adam Grant, he's an organizational psychologist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. So did you get that? 
the last guest is an organizational psychologist. This is exactly the type of expert I've been wanting to see throughout this entire pandemic. This is the type of expert I would love to see employed by the CDC as they're making their guidelines, thinking about how organizations react psychologically to these rules and regulations and crises. And a little bit of context, Adam Grant is also known for his work in, I think it's like Plan B or Plan B Association or something like that, which is the work that he did in conjunction with Sheryl Sandberg around resiliency after traumatic life events. So like his work and his research is really centered on like, how do you get through hard things and what are the changes that happen in your life because of it? Perfect guest. And here's just one of the important points and issues he was there to talk about on the panel. Well, and I was just going to say, Adam, let's talk about what is what is life at work going to look like these days? Uh, I want to uh, I want to read something here about return to work. I've heard many leaders conflate working from home with flexible work. Choosing where you work is not the same thing as flexibility over how you work and when you work. But it seems pretty clear that culturally, this is probably a big change that's not going away. We saw Amazon and Microsoft have been interesting tests here in the the Pacific Northwest. Amazon wanting everybody to return. There was a revolt. Microsoft being very flexible. Everybody happy. Where are we headed? Well, Chuck, I hope that flexibility is the future. We had data pre-pandemic that as long as people were in the office half the week together, that they could work from anywhere the other half. They were more productive, more satisfied, and more likely to stay. And there wasn't an observable cost to relationships or collaboration. Um, there was an experiment at a call center showing that when people work from home, they were 13.5% more productive. And I think it's been very, very slow for organizations to adapt to that. 2020 forced us to rethink that. And now as people start to come back to some version of, of the office, I think that employers that force people to be on site all the time are going to lose the war for talent, and they might not be around for a very long time. So back on the 20th of this month, in our episode 227, we talked about John Dickerson speaking with Daniel Pink about employment, this very same issue. And here we are on Meet the Press, which is a pretty big deal to have an issue like this break through two different Sunday shows within a few weeks. It really does presage the possibility that our work lives really may change dramatically. And oh, I really appreciated Adam Grant bringing the data to the conversation, something that we didn't have as much of in the Daniel Pink interview. I was recently listening to a podcast called The Solo Collective, which talks about independent workers. Ah, And there was a guest that kind of mentioned some of the things that Adam Grant is mentioning here, specifically around if you could do like, they did a bunch of research and she had found that the ideal work situation was to be work from home three days a week, two to three days a week, and to be at an office two to three days a week. Of course, that's not for every position or type of work would make that possible. But if you could build it, that that was the ideal schedule in terms of productivity and also collaboration and also, you know, personal happiness and what have you. And it just goes to show that there we experienced it on such like on a profound macro level so intensely in 2020. But there are experts who have been researching this and learning about this for a really long time. And we don't have to act like everything that we're 
exploring so publicly right now, it's not necessarily like a new phenomenon. Right. Just because you do it for the first time doesn't mean there's no data and no one's ever done it before. Absolutely. Yeah. I I do think it's powerful what he says here about the experiment at the call center that showing people working from home are 13% more productive. I mean, that's that's a dramatic increase in productivity when you're talking about like the number of calls someone at a call center can process a day. That just adds up and up and up and up and up. And yet he says it's been very, very slow for organizations to adopt and adapt to that new world and that data. Later in the conversation, they get to the resiliency piece as well, Naomi, as you were mentioning. Oh, interesting. They get to issues of mental health. And obviously, the first voice you'll hear is Kate Snow, again, the anchor of NBC Nightly News Sunday and the senior national correspondent. And then you'll hear once again from Adam Grant. I I think I want to pick up on something Adi, Adi just said. I think that we all are culturally going to have to reevaluate our lives to some extent right now, too. I I hear a lot of people saying they don't want to go back to the speed of life that we were living before, the the frenetic pace that many of us had in our lives. And people are valuing community. People are valuing family time, quiet time in a way that in, in some ways, I think this pandemic fully changed us and made us appreciate things that we didn't maybe before. Adam, I've never had a, a closer relationship with my kids this last year than with COVID. And it's something you're like, boy, why did it take a pandemic to do this? And I know I'm not alone. Yeah, Chuck, when we study in psychology people's reactions to traumatic events, about 15% of people come out of them with PTSD. And that's the worst case, right? Being broken by tragedy. Over 50% of people, though, experience the opposite, post-traumatic growth. It's a sense of not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward, feeling like you're closer to people. You have deeper connections. You have a renewed sense of strength. I got through that. I can get through almost anything. So this type of conversation about where the country is after this insane trauma that has been experienced by so many is so valuable. And it's so important to reflect how different people are now than they were before this happened. You know, we see again and again in the data points that are coming out, like, oh, look, there are more people flying this, you know, July 4th than they did this time in 2019. And there are more people doing this than they did in 2019. And let's compare it to the numbers in 2019. This is pre-pandemic data. But the world is so different. The people in that world are so different. And that's why it's important to have these types of more qualitative discussions about how things have shifted and changed and what it might mean for the future. Surely there are policy implications involved as well, and that is worth talking about. But it's also worth stopping and acknowledging how this has affected all of us. And that's what I really liked about this episode of Meet the Press, because it was willing to take that that bigger look. And I give them credit for choosing this date. I mean, this was the date that Joe Biden said, look, we're going to kind of declare our independence from this virus. We'll be at 70% vaccines, and they were just at 67%. Pretty close, but not quite there. But a perfect time to take stock. Yeah, and I think what I appreciate the most about conversations like this is that well, they might not seem, quote unquote, so political, like the typical topics you might think of, gun rights, healthcare, the economy, military, you know, mm-hmm. the big topics, you know, capital T topics. All of these things are 
policy choices, right? And so the way we incentivize employers to make it easy for workers or worker protections in outbreaks of respiratory illnesses and, you know, childcare and families and just the whole gamut. And so there's ways that this top these topics that Chuck Todd discussed today can extend and should extend to conversations with policymakers. And that's the next step, right? You know, it, it's one thing to talk about making sure people can care for their children and elderly and then having a conversation about the infrastructure bill and then not ever connecting the two. Right. Right. Like that's the opportunity of having a conversation like this to then understand why we need possibly that infrastructure bill or why policymakers are working on that bill. Yes. Yeah. What the what the bridges between those two topics. Exactly. It's not like accept that they should be so far away from each other, but that they're directly linked. Yeah. There was a a, and this is all over the place. Right. Like, you know, we we, we talk about that uh, terrible building collapse in Surfside, Florida that condo collapse, and then people move on to a conversation about the infrastructure deal and the the cost of the infrastructure deal, right, as we did last week, without recognizing, well, what I learned was that concrete construction really has a, like an effective life of like 50 years oftentimes. There are a lot of buildings that were built about 50, 40, 50 years ago. Those buildings need to be updated, and oftentimes that updating is really really expensive there have been estimates of how much it would cost just to update the concrete infrastructure that the federal government is involved in not even just like condo buildings not even counting those things but bridges and other places and you know it's like a trillion dollars right so that's not even touching all the other infrastructure pieces so just just a long way to say like this is these connections exist within these topics and if we focus on the people we have all these different entryways to talk about the policy interesting entryways exactly meaningful and that takes us to our dialogue challenge this week which probably should be something related to that right like a human conversation that has some sort of larger policy piece to it whatever policy you're thinking about right you could take that dialogue challenge into so many different ways but connecting it to a human element yeah yeah policy implications human elements well if you have any thoughts or human connections that you would like to share with us you're always welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com you can always tweet at me at seronaomi underscore you can tweet at me at bstidal and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast thanks everyone we will talk with you next week bye hope you had a wonderful holiday yes that too bye bye